Father, and it's speaking to us. And we pray that in so doing, we have ears to hear it. Please give us eyes to see it as well. And our prayer, Father, is, is, is that in, in all that we do, all that we endeavor to do each day, that at the, the high point of, of our day, uh, in terms of our desires and, and our uh, endeavor, that we will place becoming deeply, more intimately, closer, united, aware, keenly aware of Your presence in all that we do. We do not want to go into any situation, Father, utter a single word, respond or react in any way that does not at some point take into account Your presence and our relationship with You and Yours to us. Thank You for the way that this works in our life, Father. And for the way that You continually work in our life to to shape us and to form us into the likeness of Your Son, Jesus. To to turn us into these many Christs, living as humanity was always created to live in this particular community in this day, Father. Thank You for the opportunity to serve in this way. And as we study this Word tonight, we're asking again for the ears to hear, the eyes to see it. And so, in, in, in hearing and seeing, Father, to turn toward You and to be blessed. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, uh, do what I normally do. I get up, walk the dog, have breakfast, get dressed, stop at a, a Starbucks on the way into town, or way into the, the church building. And while I'm there, you can imagine at you know, about 6 o'clock in the morning, there's not a whole lot of people in the Starbucks. And so... I, over the year, I've really gotten to know kind of a new crew that has uh, uh, started working at uh, Starbucks I frequent uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I've gotten to know them. And this morning, as I'm waiting for the, uh, the coffee to show up, uh, the this, this same bodies that it takes my money and I have a conversation with Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, asked me if I have any New Year's resolutions. And I said uh, that it's basically the same one that I have every year. And he said, oh, really? What is it? And, he said, and I said, it's the same one I really make every day. And he goes, really? That's, uh, that's a pretty serious one. What, what is it? Do you mind sharing it with me? And I said, um, you know, to be closer to God. And he's a young guy. And he said, wow, that's cool. And I said, uh, you only know uh, the half of it. I make that resolution every day of my life. It is, it, is the driving, it is the driving desire of my life. It is to know God. It is not to know just facts about Him. It is to know God. It is, it is to know Him as a being, a, a, the Creator God who interacts to this day with His people, opening and closing doors and leading them in, into places of, of service and, and leading them not into temptation. And that is not an easy thing, as you know. We live, in a, we live in a culture that works really against that kind of a relationship. We live in a very materialistic uh, culture, and I don't mean materialistic merely at one level, one dimension that is about the stuff that you can get and have and possess. We live in a very materialistic culture from the standpoint of if you can't really touch it, measure it, it's not really something that is considered to be viable in this culture. And I completely disagree with that. I recognize, as I know you do, that there is a spiritual world. There is a, there is a spiritual battle for our souls and for the souls of every human being. 
And every day it boils down to making decisions like it does in every other part of our life. People, husbands that do not wake up in the morning, or at least on a regular basis, say, I am going to be a better husband. I'm going to have a better relationship with my wife. Or a wife that at some, base, at some point in her life is not saying, I want to do better as a wife. I want to be closer. I want to be more intimate. Those relationships are, are, are going to have some rough water somewhere up the road when that intimacy is not what it should be. It's the, same, it's the same in every area of life. And it's especially true in our spiritual life. The endeavor to not just be conformed to the image of Jesus, but like Jesus, to recognize that God is our Father, which means relationship. Which means that we have a relationship with Him. Now, I, I find at the end of Luke chapter 10, uh, this, this incredibly, it's not just interesting, it's an incredibly important story in light of, of, of some of the things that, that Luke is doing in this gospel. We all know that Luke is a very educated man. He's, he's a doctor. He writes a sort of an apologetic type of gospel that is helping the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, understand Jesus and to figure Jesus out. And one of the things that he really drills home right in the very middle of his gospel is that this is about a relationship with a father. That this is about relationship. It's about being known and knowing. It's about serving and being served. It's about being celebrated and celebrating. It is about a relationship. And he picks this up in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, where it talks about Jesus and His band, His apostles. They're, they're traveling along and they enter into a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed Him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening Listening to his word. Now, Martha is 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 really in terms of of culture. She's not doing anything wrong. In fact, she is doing culturally what was expected of her. In in these ancient villages, in these in these Mediterranean villages, especially in a culture like the one that Mary and Martha and Lazarus live in, there in Bethany, it's all about honor and about shame. You want to get all the honor you can, and you want to keep all the shame away from you. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a, a, a culture that is driven on honor, of, of saving face is the way that you would say it in another culture, another modern culture, uh, the, the Japanese culture. It's about saving face. It's about having honor. And one of the ways that you're able to garner honor in that culture was by hospitality. And that hospitality was, was, was one of the ways that, that not only you would bring honor to your house, but even more importantly, since no one ever thought of themselves individually but collectively as part of a greater village, it was a way that you brought honor to your village. What you did to that, for that guest and what you did in terms of showing hospitality to that guest not only brought honor to your own home, but it brought in a more important way honor to the entire village. She's doing what the culture expected her to do. She's in the kitchen and she's preparing a meal for her guests. Mary, on the other hand, has cut across that culture and is doing something that is not controversial, but not expected. She's sitting at Jesus' feet, recognizing Him as Lord and Teacher, and is listening to His Word. Martha, on the other hand, is distracted with all her preparations. Circle that word distracted, a very, very important word. It's not that she's just doing what is expected of her culturally, but what she's doing that's expected of her culturally has distracted her 
from being with the Christ. And she comes up to him in verse 40 and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, every time I think about that particular passage, I think about how easy it is for us to become distracted. And not to become distracted. And a lot of times we have our radars up and we have our shields up because we're thinking about the sin distractions. We're thinking about the temptation distractions. But that's not what is happening in this passage. Martha is not distracted by sin or temptation or any, any other kind of, of evil piece of that culture. She's actually doing something that's very honorable in that culture. And doing something that even Jesus Himself would probably recognize as a pretty good thing, except that it has distracted her from the most important thing, which is in relationship with Him, to listen. To listen. He says, you're bothered about a lot of things. But Mary has chosen the good thing. The good part which can never be taken from her. Now, getting back to that New Year's resolution. One of the things that, and, and, and again, it's not just New Year's, but it's something that I do every day in my prayer time, is I pray for the relationship I have with God to become more real. To be more deeply connected. To grow in intimacy with God the Father. The way that Jesus refers to Him, every time He speaks to God, it is as Father. To be able to, to sense that that relationship in my own life. And to not be distracted, for instance, by all of the things that are completely acceptable, but they distract. But they distract. And so right in the middle of, of, of Luke, really focusing in on some relational teaching and what it means to be in relationship with the Christ and to pray to God and to have a relationship with God, he has at the beginning of chapter 11, in the first 13 verses, a very important teaching on what it means to pray to God. Now, it's, it's very easy, as, 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 as I think we can all attest, that you can become so involved in ministry and in serving that you absolutely have no time actually to spend with God Himself. It's the same in any kind of a marriage. I mean, you can, you can, you can go about doing all of the duties of marriage and never really develop any kind of an intimacy where it's heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind, soul-to-soul, you know, kind of a relationship with somebody that is built on shared experiences and going through those shared experiences in the right kind of way where it draws you closer together. You can, you can go through day after day after day after day and do all of the duties of marriage and never quite develop the kind of intimacy that our souls not only require, but yearn for. And so, they're going along one day it just happened, verse 1, chapter 11, that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, His disciples are looking at this and observing. And after He has finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught His disciples. Which is kind of an interesting thing when you think about it. Here are men who have been taught all their lives how to pray. There were three times during the day that they had formal prayers. 
This is, this is a, a group, a band of Jewish men who all their lives have been acquainted with, 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 with the mechanics of prayer and the times of prayer and the words that you say in prayer. There were even prayers that they memorized. But there's something in what they're observing in Jesus that says, whatever it is that I've been taught and I've been doing all of my life when it comes to prayer, it just doesn't seem to push the button the way that I see it happening in Jesus' life. And so they say, teach us. Those of us who have been taught all our lives to pray, teach us to pray. So Jesus says, okay, verse 2, when you pray, say, and He goes to the Matthew chapter 6 model prayer that we've already seen. He says, basically, when you pray, say, Father. The difference between Christian and pagan prayer is this concept. Father. He says, Father, hallowed be Your name. The next three words, Your kingdom, what? Come. Which is another way of saying, Father, Your name is holy and majestic. Your reign, Your rule, come. What is, what is Your kingdom, what is Your rule, what is Your reign, the, 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 the space and, and the stuff that Your sovereign that that come, your sovereignty come into all of the world. And he says, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Because that's the model. But you know how it is with models. You know, you give people something to say and they're going to say it all the time whether they mean it or not. And Jesus has given them great theology here. You, you pray to Father. That's the difference between a Christian and a pagan prayer. A Christian is praying to his Father. It's about recognizing that the Father is holy, but at the same recognizing that it's His kingdom, it's His sovereignty, it's His rule that comes into our life and comes onto the earth and comes into every human heart. And so to keep them from just making it rote, to make it mechanical, to, just, to make it another building block that they can stick on top of another until they've built this prayer, He gives them this parable. And He says to them in verse 5, Now get this. Suppose one of you has a friend... And goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut. and My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his, and I want you to circle that word, persistence. Some, the NIV, I believe, has it as, as boldness. The New American Standard has persistence. Circle that word in verse 8. But yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, Jesus has given them uh, something to think about that relates to this model prayer. And he says, here's the way that you're supposed to pray. You know, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. And so on and so forth. And then he says, suppose one of you has a friend. And he begins that in the original language as tis ex humon. Suppose one of you. Tis ex humon. You have, suppose you have a friend. Which of you has a friend that goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And somebody on the inside says, Do not bother me. Now, what is, I, 
ironic here in the language that we sometimes don't get in the English is that when you begin a, a phrase in, in Luke's Gospel with tis ex humon, which of you or which one among you or suppose one of you, it always implies or expects a negative answer. I'll give you a for instance. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 5, he goes, Tis ex humon. Which of you has an ox or a son that falls into a well on the Sabbath? It's not going to pull him out. Everybody's going, no, nobody would not pull their son out of a well. In Luke chapter 15, he says, Which of you, having a hundred sheep and ninety-nine have come back, is not going to go out and find the other one? I said, well, nobody would do that. Of course we would go out and, and pull the sun out of the well and try to find the lost sheep. And then over in Luke chapter 17 and verse 7, he talks about the servant and this master relationship. And he says, which one of you would say to a servant after he's done his work, you come on in and you sit at the table and I will wait on you. And they're all laughing at this point because it's funny to them. It's not very funny to us, but it, to Jewish humor, it's, it's hilarious. And they're saying, stop it, you're killing us. Nobody would ever say to a servant, you sit while the master waits on you. Now that's the way that he begins this parable about prayer. He says, which of you, having a friend that would come to him at midnight, would go to a next door neighbor and say, hey, could you lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from the inside he answers, do not bother me. They go, nobody in their right mind would do that. Why? Because honor and shame is what drives that culture. And the village is not just about the individual. In fact, it's not about the individual at all. It's about the collective group of people in it. Nobody would say, no, we're not going to show any honor. We're not going to show any hospitality. I don't care if it shames me or my house or the entire village. Nobody would say that. And they get that. They get that. They get Culturally, nobody in their right mind would say things like, do not bother me, the door has already been shut. Well, doors can be open and doors can be shut. Nobody would say, my children and I are in bed. Children probably would not even wake up. I can remember Jessica and Jordan, we'd be driving long distance, they'd be worn out, they'd be sleeping in the back of the car. We could, we could have stopped in a hotel and, and spent the night and left them in the car and they would never have known it. They, you know, and if they wake up, they go back to sleep. And he says, I cannot get up and give you anything. They say, no way would that happen. Jesus says, you're right. And I tell you, even though he will not get up, who are we talking about? The sleeper will not give him anything because he is, that is, he is the sleeper, is his friend, yet because of his persistence, what we think of is the guy that's on the outside of the house knocking on the door, asking for bread. All of a sudden, the subject of that text changes to the person who's on the outside of the house, not the inside of the house. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, very interesting thing about that word persistence theologically. If Jesus is talking to his disciples, which means that they recognize him as Lord, they recognize him as sovereign over all of the universe, because they recognize Him as the Messiah. And He has taught them to pray, Thy kingdom come. Why would He teach them if the answer is no to keep knocking on that door? That seems to cut across the very essence of what it means to be a disciple. The word that we translate as persistence is it, it, it's the only place in the New Testament, in fact, the entire Bible, that this word shows up. It is the word anadea. 
And it is a, 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 a very difficult word. It, it is a word that's connected to a couple of different kinds of, of concepts about honor and shamelessness and blamelessness and these kinds of things. But the way that this word works in this context is in the lack of shame. That's where the idea of boldness comes. The word actually means because of his blamelessness or his lack of shame, or which is, means the avoidance of shame. And so instead of Jesus teaching, which unfortunately I have taught this way for years, teaching that if the answer comes no, then keep knocking on that door and be persistent. Now again, how does that fit into the teaching that Jesus has just given in the model prayer that you pray your kingdom come? That cuts across the grain of that. That's a contrary piece of teaching. And I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. I think more properly understood, he's saying, I tell you, even though he, that is the sleeper, will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, that this is not going to be based on friendship. Yet because of, and I think it stays the guy that's inside of the house, not the person's persistence on the outside, but the word is shameless or his avoidance of shame, but because of his avoidance of shame or his honor, He will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, all of a sudden, everything is completely changed in our understanding of prayer. We have been taught a model prayer. We've been taught, you know, Father, hallowed be thy name. Kingdom come. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those that are indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. We get that. But then we've also been taught that it's that about that persistence. And that is a biblical teaching, by the way. In Luke chapter 18, in the parable about the, the unjust judge and the widow, Jesus does say, until you get an answer, be persistent in prayer. But in this particular parable, in Luke chapter 11, the answer has come. It's no. But because Jesus is not teaching about persistence, but teaching about the, 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 uh, the nature of God, He changes completely how we pray. That it's not about our, our persistence and our trying to beat heaven down and coercing an answer and nagging God to death, but it's because of God's honor. It's because of the nature of the God that we pray to. It's not because of, of, of friendship, but because His honor of who He is in all of the universe, His, 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 His supreme character in all the universe, it is because of His honor and because of of His avoidance of shame in this culture, they would understand exactly what that means. He will get up and give Him as much as He needs. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus has completely changed the way that they are going to think about prayer. It's not just going to be the building blocks. It's not just going to be rote prayer, but it's also going to be who they're praying to. Father. A Father whose honor is at stake for every promise He has made. A Father whose name is at stake in the way that He answers prayers and answers promises. You think about this in terms of the way that Paul would describe it in in Ephesians chapter 1. You know, he's trying to get the Ephesian church to understand why, why do you not take 
your discipleship and your level of Christ-likeness and, and everything that you know about God to be true and Christ to be true and the Spirit to be true, why do you not take it up to another level so that it changes actually the way that you live with one another? And one of the things that he does to try to ratchet up, to ramp up that understanding of all of the great things that God has, has promised them coming true is to say, you know what, God puts His Spirit inside of you. And you know when that happens, when you're baptized, uh, the promise of the, the, the Spirit dwelling in you. It's a promise of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2. And when God does that, Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 1 as earnest money. That it's a guarantee. That God has put that Spirit in you as a guarantor or earnest money or whatever way that you want to describe that, that, that word in the original language. That God has put that in you. Which means that every promise that God has ever given you is going to be true. Because if He reneges on any promise, what does that mean? It means the same thing when you buy a house. And you put down that earnest money and then you decide when the deadline has passed that, well, you know what? I don't think I'm going to buy that house. What happens to the earnest money? You lose it. And you get up to that place in life where the promises of God are more real to you than they've ever been before. It may be at the place where you know that your days on this, in this life are numbered. Or it might be you know, that, that, that point in which you know, God's promises have to come true for you in this life. And you're wondering whether or not God is going to come through. God has put His Spirit in you for you to understand that the, the, the promise will come true. Because if they do not come true, if God's Word does fall and fail in your life, then God loses His Spirit. Which means that He ceases to be God. That's how much He wants you to trust and to, and, and to have faith in Him. And, and that's what he's trying to say here. Is that, do you understand who it is that you're praying for? Nobody in their right mind, knowing everything that is at stake, is going to say, you know what, the old lady and I are in bed, the kids are asleep, the dogs are asleep, the, the doors are locked, go someplace else. Nobody would do that. So verse 9. That's true. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Why do you ask? Why would you ask? Why would you seek? If seeking doesn't really matter. If, if it really boils down to you doing it yourself, why would you pray? Why, why would you ask? Why would you knock if it really if it really depends on, on your energy trying to coerce God into doing something that God has already said no. Listen, there are easier ways to do it. Just do it yourself. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. He's saying recognize who it is that you pray to. That's the, it's not the words as it is the relationship. It is the identity of the God who is, who is recognized by sons and daughters. As Father. That, that God has put His Spirit in us, which in, enables us to say Abba, which is, enables us to call Him Father in intimate terms. And because that's true, and because His honor as Creator of the universe, as, as Father is at stake, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? 
Or if he asks for an egg, will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, evil fathers, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So what Jesus is trying to help these disciples to understand is that is that when you pray to God, you are praying to a Father. And this is a Father whose honor is at stake. His fatherhood is at stake in the way that He relates to you in that prayer. And, and because that's true, ask. And because that's true, seek. And because that's true, knock on the door. Because he who asks will receive. And he who seeks will find. And if you knock, the door will be open. And he closes up and he says, Listen, you're evil fathers. I mean, everybody here understands in this crowd he's talking to that what a father is, and as a human father, you're not perfect. But even in your imperfection, you know that if your son asks for a piece of bread, you're not going to give him a a, a scorpion. And if he asks for an egg, you're not going to give him a snake. If you then, even though you're evil, know how to give these good gifts, how much more your Father heaven. Now, He's not saying that everything that you ask for is something that you're going to be given. He is Father. And as Father, he is, he, he, he is the head of your life. As Lord and Creator of the universe, He is the Lord, the Creator of your life. He is the Sovereign. He is the Master. He is the Father. He knows how to give good gifts, but it is according to His will. And when that will is no, we don't keep knocking on that door. But as disciples, accept the no. And until we receive that answer, we continue to go not trying to, to storm the doors of, of heaven and try to, try to uh, through viral e-prayers, you, you know, bombard heaven, but in the way that we speak to fathers, we speak to God the Father and continually Father lead, Father lead. Does this door open? Does you ask and you seek and you knock until the answer comes. Because God knows how to give good gifts to those who ask. Ben's going to lead us in a in a song right now, and the invitation tonight is is you know it it is it is difficult. It is very very difficult in the world that we live in to be a disciple. There is, there is so much. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, what kind of world is it that, you know, that you don't even have to hold down the button for the electric window to go down. You just push it and let go and it goes down by itself. I mean, you don't even, you don't even have to hold it down. I mean, there is so much power and there is so much, so much technology that is available to us that, that it's just sort of amazing the things that we can get accomplished each day. We even have electronically these agendas and these lists and these schedules that help us stay on track and to keep things going. And we have all kinds of strategies and all kinds of technology that just make us more and more productive. And the temptation is, is to think that that's what the kingdom of God is like. But more than anything else, when God created the heavens and the earth and He created human beings in His own image, a significant thing is that He was looking for a relationship with human beings. And when those human beings rebelled and turned away from God, it brought curse. And when it got so bad that the entire world was filled with the complete unholiness of sin, that it grieved God in His 
heart. And you know what God did about it? We've been talking about it all year. Because God loved the world. He gave His Son in order that people like you and me, through faith, can find that relationship in love once again. And Father, not just be some kind of an abstract concept, but it becomes the driving way that we think about God when we pray to Him. And maybe, maybe that's not the relationship that you've had with Him and you could use the prayers of the church or you could use the, uh, the, the prayers of your shepherds and the counsel of your shepherds in getting on that path again where you discover the greatness of that relationship. Or it might be that you've never been able to call God Father because you've never decided to become His Son. And that's available to you tonight as well. It's so easy. It's, it's a matter of, of having faith that what Christ accomplished on the cross is for you. And in declaring that Jesus is your Lord and making a decision that the Bible calls repentance in which you change your life, change your life in such a way that it reflects His Lordship and it reflects His sovereignty and it reflects a direction in, 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 in His direction rather than away from Him and your sins are washed away in baptism. And God puts His Spirit in you that you begin this life where more and more and more and more each day and through the weeks and through the months and through the years you sense that you have a heavenly who cares and loves and directs your steps and opens doors and protects you and guides you and provides for you and embraces you and saves you and forgives you and protects you day by day by day. You are saved unto Him. That describes you tonight. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. We'd love for you to come down and talk to them while the rest of us stand and praise God together. Oh, Master, let me walk with Thee.